Welcome to Living Hope Podcasts. If you want to learn more about Living Hope and our ministries, you can find us online at livinghopecrc.ca. We hope you appreciate today's message. Thank you so much to the GEMS program for that. Uh, At this point, I invite you to take out your Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 2. Um, and you can also open up or, or find John chapter 7, because uh, we're going to read that as well. Uh, we're continuing in our series, uh, What Sort of Story Is This? Uh, this is a series where we're looking at Genesis chapters 1 through 11, and we ask, what sort of story is it that we're looking at, and how is it inviting us uh, to participate in it? Um, Picking up where we left off last week, we went through Genesis chapter 1 and that part of the creation account. Uh, We still haven't finished that whole story, though. We have the last three verses of that story that uh, begin chapter 2. And then we'll also look at uh, the next part of the creation story, verses 4 through 14. Let's read God's word together. Uh, Before reading God's word, let's pray. Creator God, you remind us that the ignorance of doubt and cannot overcome your life-giving word. May your Holy Spirit, who first inspired these words of Scripture, shine your light and once again awaken us to the hearing and living of this radiant truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Genesis chapter 2. Thus, the heavens and the earth were completed in their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work that he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now, no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then God, the Lord God, formed man from dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there it separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is the Pishon. It winds its way through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs alongside the east of Asher. 
And the fourth river is the Euphrates. John chapter 7, verse 37 to 39. On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood up and said in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the Spirit had not been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So a couple of years ago, I got the opportunity to go to Egypt. I had spent a bit of time in Israel beforehand and uh, look at the different sites there and see what types of archaeology was there. And there wasn't that much exciting. There was really interesting uh, places to visit that I learned about in Scripture, but as far as impressive architecture, it it wasn't really there. Um, And that's when we went to Egypt We just marveled at the size of the temples that were there. Uh, There's one temple that stands out in particular. It's called Karnak. Um, This temple is the largest religious building ever made. So not just 4,000 years ago or 5,000 years ago when they started making it, uh, but still to this day is the largest structure or religious building ever made. Um, Here's an image from uh, when we were there. This is my brother. Uh, he is a regular-sized person. Like this is a ma- this is the entrance gate right here, and there's no reason for a wall to be that thick. Um, one of the things that they would say to kind of explain why they made something that large was because they believed that this was a space that their gods would enter, um, and they were signifying how big how this space needed to be fortified. Um, here's one of the columns that were there. Uh, So in the main center of the center court of Karnak, there were 134 different pillars. The tallest of them were 70 feet tall. Um, And on the top, I don't know if you can see up there, uh, there were uh, pieces of stone that were uh, 70 tons, 70 tons uh, that were on top. So just being there and looking at that, it's hard to imagine how they did all these things. Here's another picture. This is just on the other side of the Nile, uh, so not at Karnak. But you can see the size of this stone. Uh, There's a person right here. um, And this is one stone. Uh, The head is here and the shoulder here uh, that they had carved a statue. It's one of the largest statues um, ever built, kind of from one piece. Now... When we're traveling through, okay, how do I get through this? That's how. Okay, when we're traveling through uh, Egypt, one of the things that they advised for us was that we don't just look at it through our our modern eyes and try to think, okay, how did they make these things? Uh, But they invited us to look at it through ancient eyes, through an ancient mindset, to think of what was going through the heads as they came in. What were these temples signifying? These temples for the people at the time were to give a sense of awe, a sense that they were very small in comparison to the gods. 
one of the reasons why the temples were so significant is because they helped people to picture how the gods were involved in the world. Uh, in the ancient imagination, uh, the temple was a space that was deeply connected with creation. So, for instance, in Egypt, uh, they would tell a story of creation where the, the whole earth was covered in waters. And, and then from this water, a, a peak would emerge. And that peak would then be the, the place from which all of creation would come. And, and they would celebrate, they would build these temples as high as they could uh, because these were signals of creation, this kind of center point from which where the gods created all of the rest of creation. Uh, this was a story that would be fairly familiar on the Egypt side of things, but it was also on the other side of Israel up in uh, Mesopotamia, so your Babylon and Assyrian empires, they would have had similar stories there. Uh, something common that you find in temple structures throughout all this is a three-part structure. So here we have a three-part structure where we have the inner courts and, or the outer courts, and the outer courts represented land, the sea, uh, basically any place where humanity was. Um, the inner courts represented the visible heavens, and the most holy place, this was where God dwelt, or I could say the dwelling place of the gods. So we, we have this sense that within the temple structure, uh, that that center place was to, to mirror the, the whole of creation there. Uh, the, the temples were miniatures of the world, and they represented all of creation. Now, one last thing on, on temples. There was two different things that signified the, the finishing or the completion of a temple. One would be the creation of the image of that god. Um, often it would be going down to a river and picking up some dirt and, and forming that and saying a ritual over that or, or breathing the, the life of that god into it. And that would be the one thing of creating of the image. But the main thing that signified the finishing of a temple is the resting in that temple. The temple was made for the God to come in and rest there or reside in the temple. Uh, the analogy that sometimes is given is that when, when they told stories of, of temples and of creation, that it would be like a factory where you build the walls of the temple. You kind of create the structures for it. Then, then you start to fill it. You put in all the machines. You put in all the different things that need to make that temple work. And then you hire the people. And you make sure that it's able to be filled and fruitful. And then on the last day, on the opening day, everyone shows up and the boss is there. And he sits in his space. He kind of resides in his space. And from there, um, controls the rest of the space. And that's how, kind of in the ancient mindset, they saw the temples. At the completion of a temple, the god would come and rest in it. It would reside in it. And the god would be there, controlling the rest of creation and the cosmos. Uh, 
what, once you know this, that this is what, these are the types of stories that people were sharing on either side of Israel or all around. This is what their neighbors were talking about. And it's, it's hard not to see that there are, there's common ground in Genesis 1 and 2 here. The, the original audience of this passage would be trying to look around and, and they would be surrounded by these different understandings of what the temple is. They would be wondering, what is our story? Who is our God? Uh, where do we fit in in the midst of this? And then we get this story of Genesis chapters 1 and 2. Uh, we have God forming all of creation, putting it together, setting it up in a way that it will flourish from an, an, an empty void. So if you remember from last week, we have this empty void, this, this dry space that then is meant to be filled. Uh, we have these images of God separating and forming and assigning roles to different things. Uh, God is creating a place where he can dwell. And then at the end, God creates humanity in his own image and breathes life into it. Then, as creation is finished, God enters into his rest. The word for rest here is not simply that God is taking a nap. He's not just taking a rest after all this hard work, but he is residing. He is entering into the place that he has created. He gets into creation as it should be, as it was intended to be the dwelling place of God a temple that brings his praise. So Eden here is not just a snapshot of paradise. It is a dwelling place of God. So to go back to this um, three-part image of what a temple was, there's the parallel here where the outer courts um, are reflected, or the most holy place is reflected as Eden. And in the creation account, this Eden was meant to go out and spread to the garden, and the filling was supposed to go out to the outer world. And humanity was meant to take this Eden, the sacred place where God was, and to spread it throughout the whole of creation. Now, before moving on, I want to reflect just on how this impacts our idea of rest and the seventh day. Uh, this helps make sense of the creation account in several ways, and I'll have three different points here. First, temple rest. Uh, the, the seventh day here is part of the creation account. It's not a separate day where nothing happens, but it's the most important day to which everything was building. God comes to dwell into the space that he has prepared. Second, God's work of creation is ongoing. Um, this has implications on how we view God as creator. Uh, God's not just someone that creates uh, creation and then steps back and watches it go. It's not like a clock that starts up and just continues on without him. And this isn't always how we see creation. Um, John Walton a theologian who's spent a lot of time with Genesis chapter 1 has this to say, um, that we have lost the view that nature does not operate independently from God. 
God is still creating with each baby that is born, with each plant that grows, with each cell that divides, with each nebula that forms. God's magnificence is not just in the big things like the sunsets. His point here is that we need a a recovery of the sense that God is actively sustaining all things, that God's engagement with creation is both past, present, and future. Um, Lastly, uh, the third point here, the Sabbath is enriched. Um, Our idea of Sabbath rest is actually enriched in this perspective. So what we have here is that the day of rest isn't about us napping, uh, but the rest is the stopping from doing the things of necessity, the things that we're forced to do in our regular working patterns. It's a day of living into creation as it should be, a day where we practice hospitality, we spend time with our neighbors and family, or unless we have uh, extra social distancing that we need to be doing. Um, and it's a time where, where we can go outside, where we can go for hikes, where we read or, or we write or we watch a movie and, and enjoy the creativity of others. Uh, Sabbath rest is about delighting in how God continues to sustain all things. Uh, to summarize right here, Genesis 1 can be seen as God creating a temple, a place where God dwells. And from this dwelling place, creation is meant to be filled. It's it's meant to expand into the whole of the world. For the remainder of uh, this message, I want to focus in on another part of Genesis chapter 2, and that's at verse 10, where we have this image of the river that flows from this garden. Uh, It's an image that gets picked up in several different places of Scripture, so we're going to be jumping around in some of these places in Scripture and see how the Bible interprets this passage. Uh, So first, we have this image here. Um, This is my attempt at a garden or or an Eden-like garden. We've got some trees, we've got a little bush there. And this garden is also a temple. So we got this kind of temple garden thing going. I'll have both of those images, images in there. And then from this temple garden, we find that there is a spring or, or a river. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. Uh, so this is an oasis that, that bubbles up from the ground in Eden. And from this one river, it's separated into four headwaters. So it it separates into four major rivers that then go on and spread into the rest of the earth. That that from this one place, we have blessing and life. We have the extra trees alongside that river. Uh, This this life that extends beyond into the rest of God's creation. This image here should be one that's maybe a little bit familiar to some of us. Uh, I'm not going to pretend that you remember uh, sermons from two years ago or longer, uh, but this actually is picked up in Ezekiel chapter 47, and I preached on that a while ago, and maybe you don't remember a word from that message, but hopefully this image is mildly familiar. This is the image that we had here. 
um, you can see my drawings improved a little bit. Uh, we have this image in Ezekiel 47 of a temple from which water flows, this ever-expanding river, and then wherever this water flows, it creates an Eden-like state. There's trees that pop up all over the place. There's animals that grow, uh, or animals that grow, animals that live there. And then you even have the, the fisher, fishermen down by the, the Dead Sea. We can't see the Dead Sea there, but it, it transforms this Dead Sea, which has no life in it, and it becomes a place that is so abundant with fish that the fishermen are shoulder to shoulder there. And that's the image that we have here. So we have this image of Eden is reimagined as simply this temple, the place of God's presence from which uh, this river flows. And something that they say at the later parts of Ezekiel 47 is that the trees are growing on both sides and the leaves don't wither, nor will their fruit fail. Every month they will bear fruit because of the water from the sanctuary flows to them. Their fruit will serve as food and their leaves for healing. And I love that image of their leaves being made for healing. I, I think of this as, um, what's this called now? This is uh, one of those things to listen to, stethoscope? Um, I, just this idea that the trees are part of the healing here. That image is then picked up elsewhere in Scripture. We have Revelation chapter 22, where this gets picked up. Uh, so it's kind of give us a bit of a setting here for Revelation 22. Um, in chapter 21, we have this, this cube coming down to earth. Uh, the, the cube signifies the holy of holies. And, and this cube-shaped thing is also named as a city. So this holy of holies, this place where God dwells, which is partly temple, is coming down to earth and it comes into a garden-like place. And here we pick up on Revelation chapter 22, where it's just described that image. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down to the middle of the great street of the city, on each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. So our image here of this garden temple from Genesis chapter 2 is reimagined in Revelation chapter 22, where we have this throne of God, and from the throne of God comes this river that goes through the streets. The streets have trees on either side, so it's, it's both city and garden. It, that image of um, city and garden is a little bit of the fulfillment of what Genesis chapter 2 is all about. Uh, it, it's about the filling of God's creation. Uh, it's about being fruitful and multiplying. Uh, it's not just a retreat back to Genesis chapter 2, but recognizing that there's been development, there's community, and there's communion that is going on here. That was a lot. 
there's one more thing I want to point out here, and that is John chapter 7, the passage that we had already looked at. John chapter 7, verse 37 to 39 says, let anyone, oh, so Jesus here, uh, by the way, he is standing at the temple. This is at the end of a seven-day festival, the festival of booths, I believe. And he, this, this was a festival surrounding the temple. Every day, water would be poured near the temple site, uh, and the, the priest would say something around that. And on the seventh day was the peak of this day. And here Jesus is standing by the temple on the seventh day, and he speaks these words in a loud voice, it says. Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. So what's going on here? Uh, this is perhaps, uh, well, this is Ezekiel being reimagined. Uh, this is a taste of what Revelation gives in full later. Uh, to put this to an image here, we have this, this temple garden, and we have this coming now from a person. Uh, I drew a little heart there. Uh, I'm not sure if it's exactly the, the heart of the person, the the scripture, if we take it literally, it's the innermost part of the person that the, the river flows from. Uh, one of our New Testament professors translated that um, water would be flowing from your bellies is basically what Jesus is saying here. This is a reimagination of the Genesis 2 account and of Ezekiel 47 right here. So, oh, and here we have this idea uh, this is both a reimagination of the temple and of Eden. Jesus is saying, I'm restoring all of creation, and its renewal starts with you. You will be the place from which the spring gushes, the one that brings life everywhere it goes. You are given the same mandate of being fruitful and multiplying. And this is realized through the work of the Spirit in us, the three-in-one God working in and through us, overflowing beyond us, undoing the curse wherever we go. So, Church of Jesus Christ, this, this is good news. This is gospel good news for us. The good news is that this has been fulfilled this is the story that we are a part of. Jesus has defeated death and sin and went on to equip all who believe in him with the filling of the Spirit. This is God resting and residing in us. This is a renewal of that first part of the story. This is Eden reimagined. The filling of the Spirit flows out into the world and brings healing to the nations. Uh, this, this passage here is a passage that ultimately points us towards missions. There, there's a missional implication here. As spirit-dwelt people, we're not just listeners to the story. Uh, we're in it. We're part of this 
As Jesus um, promises here in John chapter 7, that the, the Spirit will come and it will overflow from us. Regaining creation, fulfilling what creation was meant to do, doing what, crea- or what humanity was created to be, God's image bearers bringing life into a good creation and directing it as blessing back up to God. So missions, then, it's part of our DNA. It's part of just who we are as a church. Like a non-missional church just doesn't make sense. And the mission here assumes something. Uh, that, that dry wasteland sort of place, that, that dark void that we started with, it assumes uh, or that uh, from Genesis chapter 1. It also assumes this dryness from Ezekiel 47. The, the image of river, of a river that brings flourishing, is given meaning in a space that is thirsting for life. And, and I don't know for yourselves what that thirsting can look like. In, in your context, the emptiness or the darkness can look like all sorts of different things. Uh, This can be COVID-19 itself and the restrictions and the limitations over a year. It can be in uh, addictions or or any unwanted behaviors that we have, things that we continue doing despite knowing that these aren't good things for us. It could be the inner struggles of, of envy or mistrust of others. It can also show up in other things like depression or, or mental illness, uh, things that prevent us from seeing how God created us good in our own bodies as part of the good creation. There are these obstacles, uh, reminders that creation is not renewed yet in its fullness, places that demand perseverance. Running up into these obstacles doesn't mean that we're wrong, uh, but simply that the curse has not been fully removed from creation. The question then for us is, is how do we live as John chapter 7, or yeah, John chapter 7 people, as people regaining that vision from Genesis chapter 2? One example or one space uh, that this past year has forced us into is reimagining what it means to be hospitable and kind to our neighbors. It's forced us to think of new ways that we sustain ourselves as spirit-filled and led people. New ways of waking up to how the spirit may be directing us. It's forced us to think of the rethink of the value of our homes as a place from which we can bring God's blessings. Looking ahead, I look forward to conversations that we can have about the opportunities that we'll have to bring that hospitality in our church community, where we can reach out to those who are hungering and thirsting for community and communion, for those who are longing to fill the gaps in their spiritual lives. And I'm wondering, what steps can we be taking right now 
as a community to be giving a welcome space, a, a place of belonging for others, a place of connection. We're not back to gathering in our fullness yet. Now, that's perhaps a way off, but there are ways that we can be preparing. What patterns can you be forming to show that you are part of a mission, part of a people who are meant to bring this blessing into the world, where we fill God's creation and bless it and turn it towards blessing, towards God? So today, as you are in your households, uh, whether you're on your own or whether you're with your family, I encourage you to have these different conversations about what this means for you. And I have three questions uh, to help fill this out. So what does it mean to be people of this story? One question we can ask is, how can we rest in a way that enjoys God's good creation. Another question we can be asking is, where is a dry place where the Spirit may be directing us? Lastly, what does hospitality look like where you are? As we consider these things, I invite you to have conversations again uh, with your families and throughout the week. And as we come to a close here, I invite you uh, into prayer. Dear Lord, your creation is beautiful. Uh, you created it to exude life, to enjoy you, to experience life in the full. And you created it so that you could dwell with it that life could enjoy you and your presence. Even though we have messed up, you made it possible through Jesus and through the Spirit that we can live into what creation was made for, being a place where your blessing extends to the world. May we be sent as people of your mission. Fill us in ways that send us overflowing with your grace and goodness. May we be hospitable, open, and generous. Show us how we can walk with others, delighting in their gifts and bringing them into the fullness for which you created. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope that you are encouraged and challenged in the message and through the work of the Spirit. Once again, if you want to learn more about Living Hope, you can find us online at livinghopecrc.ca.